You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning. This is the Surveyor's Hour on America's Web Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Lucas. I am a land surveyor and attorney at law. We'll spend the next hour talking about land surveying and land surveyors. As always, your questions and comments are welcome. You can send them to Jeff at AmericasWebRadio.com. You can find out more about me at my personal website, www.LucasAndCompany.com. Uh, check out our res- some of our free res- resources there on our website. Uh, pay us a visit. Okay, um, <clears throat> this morning uh, we don't have a guest, so uh, what we're going to do is uh, discuss another case. Last uh, The last two programs we discussed the case of um, Lawson versus Juan Miller, which is a very good case. Case I, uh, um, it was my favorite case for for ten years, making uh, um, making uh, seminar presentations. A very good case had a lot of interesting a uh, uh, lot of interesting information in it. So we're going to look at another case this morning. This is the uh, this is my twenty fifth show. Just by the way. I guess that's like a silver anniversary or something. Um, Nobody's as as surprised as I am that I've lasted this long, but we're here and going to continue and uh, would like to hear from you with comments. And and if you have any guest suggestions, of course, uh, send those to us as well. I am looking for guests. I just haven't been able to get ahead of the curve on that. But... um, uh, the, the guests always make the show a little, I think, maybe a little more interesting, but uh, we've got an interesting case to talk about here today. Uh, this is another uh, This is another case out of Tennessee, and uh, for some reason, these Tennessee cases just seem to be, um, well, there's a lot of them, and uh, they have some interesting, uh, they have some interesting characters in them. Um, I think I have another Tennessee case we're going to talk about uh, here in the next couple of weeks if, if we don't get a guest on the program. But uh, this case is uh, is relatively new. Uh, it was uh, the decision was made in October of 2019. So um, uh, this thing's only uh, a few months old, six seven months old. So um, so it's fr- uh, fresh off the press, so to speak. I actually um, I actually covered this case in um, our July edition of our newsletter, um, the Lucas Letter, uh, where we go over uh, cases involving surveyors and boundary disputes and other issues, negligence, you know, just the whole gamut uh, of cases. Uh, one of the reasons... Um, why, uh, of course, we've talked about the reasons for going over cases, but um, as far as um, um, professionals, um, surveyors, engineers, architects being involved in in, in uh, lawsuits, uh, one of the reasons surveyors are so often involved in lawsuits is because they have uh, direct contact with um, with people's um, landowners. Um, Private property, their, their and their private property rights. So uh, that ends up being, uh, in many situations, being being a lawsuit. And uh, again, the reason we study cases is because there will be 
there will be a fact scenario, and if you're a practitioner, if you're um, a land surveyor practitioner, <clears throat> you'll want to read as many cases as you can or be familiar as, as, as many cases as you can because they each have their individual fact scenario. And then from those facts, a decision is made, and um, um, the law is uh, rubbed up against those facts. So if you, if as a practitioner, you come up with similar fact situations uh, in the future, um, you'll you'll have an idea of how the law uh, played out in a in a similar fact situation. So, and this 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 case has a, uh, a couple of interesting. Uh, fact scenarios, and uh, one of them has to do with uh, how to um, how to determine um, the location of a historic boundary line, and that's that's what's involved here. We have a historic boundary line that uh, was, uh, I guess, to a certain extent, maybe obliterated, meaning not totally destroyed, not lost. Obliterated isn't lost. Obliterated means. Uh, generally speaking, the evidence of the um, uh, of the corner locations has become ex- obscured. Okay, and in this case, uh, what we would be talking about is the original uh, corner monuments that maybe were set in place uh, for the subdivision. This is this is subdivided land. We're talking about improved subdivided land in this in this particular instance. Lots. And blocks, and um, so the disappearance of the corner monument doesn't mean that the corner's lost. It means that the monumentation uh, has um, has disappeared. The corner is considered um, obliterated. It's uh, ambiguous to a certain extent. It's become um, a little bit in doubt, and so <clears throat> when. Uh, when that happens, what we, you have to do as a retracement surveyor is find other evidence. Uh, find other evidence that uh, helps to um, that, that helps the retracement surveyor to figure out uh, where the uh, original corner was actually located. So, in this case, uh, Weber versus Kroger, we have two neighbors uh, living side by side. Uh, in a in an old subdivision, the subdivision. This is in Nashville, Tennessee. And if you were interested in uh, getting a visual, which we can't do here on the program, but if you're interested in getting a visual, if you know anything about Google Earth, you could go to Google Earth, or you could go to Google Maps. But <clears throat> Google Earth. The, the reason, one of the reasons for going to Google Earth is you'll be able to. <clears throat> if you're familiar with it at all, you'll be able to uh, roll back the photography, the aerial photography, to an earlier date. And uh, so, if you if you're so inclined to go to Google Earth, and I'm going to give you the address of the properties here in just a second, and uh, um, then <clears throat> once you find the properties. Uh, if you look across the top, I'm not looking at Google Earth right now, but if you look at, across the top uh, of the, um, let me let me just see if I can pull it up here real quick. Okay, here it is. If you look up there at your, uh, your top toolbar uh, on the uh, uh, 
just to the left of where you see a, the, the sun shining, um, sunlight across landscape, just to the left of that, you can go back in time uh, with the photography. And um, in this case, we'd want to go back to about 2010 because at 2010, you're going to see what the properties look like uh, before this um, before this controversy arose. So, um, <clears throat> so we have uh, this old subdivision. It is um, it is called the it is called the Belmont Land Company plan of lots called Belmont Heights. It's in Plat Book 421, page 34. And this is in Davidson County, Tennessee, uh, Nashville area. The uh, the properties are located at 2407 Oakland Avenue. Uh, that is the defendant's, uh, no, that's the plaintiff's property at 2407 Oakland Avenue. And then at 2405 Oakland Avenue is the defendant's property uh, in this case. Now, I'm going to pull up what I have uh, on this, let's see. Let me get to my case here. Weber versus Kroger. All right. So the property, if you if you if you're not, um, if you're uh, if you don't have Google Earth up and you haven't gone to these addresses, uh, these properties are located uh, basically east east to west. They're, they're on, on a little bit of a diagonal, and I'm waiting for my picture to come up here. Uh, they're on a little bit of a diagonal. Um, <clears throat> but basically, located east to west, uh, Oakland Avenue is... Uh, is So, so the, the properties are... The original lots were 100 feet wide and 150 feet deep. But for whatever reason, most of them here in the Belmont uh, Heights area were cut in half. So all of the lots became uh, 50 feet wide and 150 feet deep. And they're located, they're, they're situated uh, east, uh, east to west. So the, the 50 feet is the north-south dimension and the 150 feet is east-west dimension. On the east side of the properties is Oakland Avenue. Um, that's the right of way. And in the back, there's an alley uh, for access uh, to the properties uh, uh, There's um, to get into the garages that are behind these houses. So these houses were originally built, and this is, this is, uh, uh, an, this is a, an important point. The houses were originally built uh, in the 1913 era. And uh, so we're going to have a contractor comes along here. In um, what is it? In 2003, and his name is uh, Fry, uh, Robert Bradley Fry, uh, Brady Fry. Fry buys both properties. He buys the 2000, uh, the 2405 and the 2407 properties, and uh, he he's doing the renovation. He's renovating. He's a I guess he's a house flipper. So he buys both properties, and he's working on uh, 24. Uh, he, he works on 20, he buys 2407 first and then he buys 2405 he's living in 2407 he um, finishes the renovation on 2405 
and he sells that property to Kroger while he's still living in 2407, and eventually he finishes up 2407 and sells that to Weber. So Weber is going to be our plaintiff, Kroger is going to be our defendant, and um, we'll uh, we'll take a look here at uh, at what happens from there. So Fry buys the properties, he does uh, his his renovations. And part of the buy-sell agreement with uh, Kroger, uh, between Fry and Kroger, was um, they uh, they held three thousand dollars back, uh, five thousand dollars back, excuse me, uh, from the proceeds of the sale, uh, and uh, Fry had to put that in escrow because Kroger wanted Fry to finish up a few a few uh, details. He wanted him to build a privacy fence between the two properties. And he wanted them to install gutters on 2405. And 2405, by the way, is situated north of 2407. And uh, these lots, these 50-foot wide lots, have five-foot setback lines uh, on the sides. They probably have some sort of front setback line, but the, the setback lines on the sides were five feet. And these houses uh, are, are 40 feet wide. Uh, they they were built originally built right up to the side setback. So if you got a 50 foot wide lot and a 40 foot wide house, that gives you a five foot setback on the north side of your house and a five foot setback on the south side of your house. So if you're looking at them on aerial photography, they got the houses all have 10 feet between them uh, on this block. They're all on 50 foot wide lots uh, and they're all 10 feet apart. And so that that. That tells us something about the historical, you know, right there that's given us a clue about the historical boundary line. These houses uh, were originally built to the uh, the maximum width that they could put on a lot right up to the setback lines um, to get as much house as they could. Uh, so uh, part of the um, part of the agreement um, with the buy-sell between Fry and Kroger, who bought 2405 to the north of 2407, was that he would build a privacy fence, uh, and that's when we get into um, um, that's when we'll get into some uh, interesting uh, aspects about uh, about this boundary line. Um, I imagine we have a break coming up here, and just uh, maybe just a little bit, so we'll pick up. We'll pick up after the break, folks. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800 438 0387 or go to quickstake.com that's q-u-i-k-s-t-a-k-e dot com and order your samples ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today hello I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves if you do join us on the doctor's lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. And we would appreciate it if you'd call Quick Stakes and order your samples. And while you're doing that, thank them for sponsoring your show. 
the Land Surveyors Hour on America's Web Radio with Jeff Lucas. And uh, we would appreciate them knowing that you appreciate the show. We know that uh, out of about 38,000 land surveyors, uh, when I was introduced to the land surveying industry, there were almost 60. So it's dropped by almost a little over uh, 20,000 now. Uh, and this was uh, over the past uh, 15, 20 years. So, uh, Quick Stakes, Parker Davis, they support you, and we appreciate your support of them. With that being said, we're going to get back to uh, Mr. Lucas right after this quick message, and we'll be right back. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, welcome back, folks. All right, we're going to talk about this boundary dispute now. So Fry, our house flipper, uh, sold uh, 2405. He's, he's working on two old houses, renovated these two old houses, built at uh, the uh, early part of the 1900s. Subdivision was created in 1913. So he's renovated these houses. He sold uh, the northern house at 2405, the address 2405. He sold that to Kroger, our defendant, in 2005. Uh, then, uh, as a part of that, um, Kroger and Fry executed an addendum to their purchase and sale agreement, providing that $5,000 of the purchase price would be held in escrow until Fry um, first erected a privacy fence between the two properties, 2405 and 2407. Now, Fry's living in 2407 at this time, and now his neighbor to the north is Kroger. So this is an important aspect of trying to figure out. Uh, if you want to know what a, a fence is, um, let's, let's just stop right here. Fences uh, can't, uh, for, for the retracement survey, fences are, are important, Okay. Uh, they mean something. P- people build fences for a reason. And if you are truly a retracement surveyor you, and you run up, run up on a fence, you, you need to ask yourself a question. What does this fence mean? And how do you know what a fence means as a retracement surveyor? There's only one. The fence isn't going to talk to you. So there's only one way to know what the fence means is you've got to ask some questions. So who do you ask? Well, the, the only people you can ask are the landowners, um, and and they're going to they will tell you something about the fence. So if you if you're surveying this boundary line, if you end up being the surveyor who surveys one of these properties, either 2407 for Weber or 2405 for Kroger, uh, the first person you should ask about the fence would be your client, whether it's Weber or Kroger, because. Uh, they'll know something about it. I mean, it, it, or they won't know anything about it. So there's only there's 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 two possible answers here when you ask a landowner about a fence. They're going to tell you what it means. They're going to uh, maybe it represents maybe it represents the the boundary line, or maybe it doesn't. Or maybe your client is just buying the piece of property and they have no idea what the fence means. But fences can't be ignored. Um, they, they can't be ignored. Uh, you have to understand what they are because they, in many instances, they and why they're there. In many instances, they've been erected as uh, as the boundary line between the two properties. So in this case, uh, we have we have the two property owners at this point. 
Fry. He's, he's still working on a renovation, 2407, and he sold 2405 to the north to uh, to Kroger. But the agreement is that he has to, Fry has to uh, put a, 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 a privacy fence between the two properties, and he has to install gutters and downspouts uh, on um, on Kroger's property. The language regarding the privacy fence is as follows. Privacy fence to the rear of property between 2405 and 2407 Oakland Avenue. Fence to the north side of property to be completed in coordination with completion of grading with owners of 2403 Oakland Avenue. Seller agrees to complete this portion of the fence within 30 days of notice from the buyer. So, Mr. Fry, uh, then... After he puts the fence up, subsequently in 2006, July 2006, he sold. He finished up the renovations on 2407, and he sold that to Weber in 2006. So the, the parties now, now the parties, now the neighbors. The fence went up. <clears throat> Fry put it up at Kroger's insistence. That's important. Fry put the fence up at Kroger's insistence. It was part of the contract. So now the parties uh, living living uh, next door to each other are Weber. He bought 2407 from Fry, and Kroger, uh, who had previously bought 2405 from Fry. So Fry, and here's another uh, issue. Fry is a common grantor. He owned both properties at one point in time, and a common grantor implicates um, implicates some very important. Uh, boundary location doctrines, and one of those one of those doctrines is it's called the common grantor doctrine. The common grantor doctrine uh, goes like this, and, and it works. It it's generally works for you know for the subdivision like this Belmont Heights subdivision. There was a common grantor. There was a developer who bought this property and caused it to be subdivided on the ground. That's the common grantor. The developer. Whoever uh, that is, it could be uh, multiple people, it could be a corporation, whatever. The original developer is the original grantor of Belmont Heights. And the, the doctrine, the location doctrine is, when the common grantor causes the land to be subdivided on the ground, then those monuments that the, that, uh, the common grantor caused to be put in the ground, generally or usually by a surveyor, become infallible okay that's the doc that's the common grantor doctor what do i mean by infallible uh if the surveyor made mistakes along the way didn't get them in exactly the right place that they should be they're not uh in uh the place where the title documents that in this instance that would be the plat where the title documents say precisely where they ought to be, well, that's that's irregardless because when they when they're put in the ground at the time of the conveyance, then the presumption under the law, um, and, and what is a presumption, we'll get to that in a second. But the presumption under the law is that they are uh, that the the grantor sold and the grantee bought the dirt surrounded by the monuments, almost irrespective as to what the title documents might say. And in this case, the title documents would be uh, lot whatever of, uh, Bel- of block whatever of Belmont Heights subdivision, plat book, and page. Um, and another, uh, another um, 
um, another doctrine of, of boundary law, or actually a rule of construction is that when you have a deed that calls for a plat or a survey, whether it be recorded or not, um, everything that shows up on that plat or that survey is just as if it was written into the deed. That's a that's a basic rule of construction that's pretty much universal across all jurisdictions. So if you have a deed that says Lot 9 of Belmont Heights Subdivision, Map Book and Page, uh, everything that is on that, if you go pull that plat from the uh, Register of Deeds or wherever they're recorded in your jurisdiction, you go pull that plat, anything that shows up on that plat is just as if it was written into the deed. So if that plat shows that uh, that monuments were set at the corners, um, that could be um, just with a symbol uh, and a description of what that symbol is in the legend of the map, then those all of those monuments are just as if they were called out directly uh, in the deed. So that's what we call uh, called for monuments. When the monuments are called for in the deed, they rule. Uh, they will control course and distance. So um, generally speaking, monuments do get set. Uh, I mean, there's there's only one way to know where the lots are. You have to lay them out at some point in time. Now, the problem with the problem with these older plats, like this 1913 plat, is they the surveyors back in 1913 or uh, or maybe even earlier they were working on the ground laying out the lots. A lot of times they just used wooden stakes. It didn't didn't last long at all. So what happens when the original monuments disappear? Um, the corner then becomes somewhat obliterated, uh, but there, uh, it, what usually happens, especially in a subdivision, is things get built. And that's exactly the situation we have here in this case. Things got built. Houses got built. They got built right to the setback lines. And how could they build right to the setback lines? How could they build right to the setback lines in 1913 if the original property line wasn't on the ground? So we don't have any monuments. But we do have houses. We have houses, and let's and, and we have a fence, and we have the common grantor doctrine in play. So let's continue here. So the the parties now Weber and Kroger living next door to each other in happy peaceful coexistence did not question the location of their shared boundary until when until the first surveyor comes along. Unfortunately, this is all too often the case. They didn't question their shared boundary until sometime in 2011 when the Webbers had a survey done for reasons unrelated to this case. As described more fully below, the 2011 survey indicated that the boundary line did not match up with the location of the privacy fence. The defendants, the Krogers, had another survey done in 2016, so four years later. And based on the results of that survey, the defendants decided to take down the privacy fence and make use of the property that the survey indicated belonged to them. 
a couple of uh, a couple of realities here. Okay, belong to them. Most people, most landowners think that land surveyors come out and show them the property that they own. What belongs to them, and that's exactly what's happening in this case. All right, we'll pick up there uh, after the break. Quick state. Does your survey supply dealer have quick stakes? If not, demand that they start carrying quick stakes. Did you know that quick stakes are better for your back than your local chiropractor? Lightweight and easier to use than the old heavy wooden stake. Order a sample today and prove it to yourself. Quick stakes, your back friendly stake. Want to remind everybody that we've got great shows on America's Web Radio. We've got the classic car show on Saturdays and uh, religious shows on Sunday, and just all throughout the week we've got uh, doctor shows. We've got uh, just all sorts of great shows, land serving show, and uh, on and on the list goes. And we've got some new shows coming on board very shortly. So. Always stay tuned to America's Web Radio, and you can go back and listen to the shows. You can listen to this show. Uh, uh, it should be on our website no later than tomorrow sometime. And uh, the classic car show from this past Saturday, we were talking about the history of thermostats and the the heating of the cars and so forth and so on. So, very interesting show, and most of our shows, I always learn something. And they're that good, and we appreciate everybody listening in. We'll be back right after this. Whether cruising the strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, we're back. All right, where we left off was um, we had a 2011 survey um, that was commissioned by um, uh, by Weber, and that survey didn't agree with the fence that had been set in place uh, by Fry, the common grantor, um, in agreement with um, Kroger, who was living in the other house at the time. And then, uh, so at 2011, five years later, 2016, the Kroger's had a survey performed. And that survey didn't agree with the fence either. Now, we're going to find out the two surveys agreed with each other. But they did not agree with the fence. And that's when, uh, that's when Kroger, uh, the defendant in here in this case, he's going to get a lawsuit because of the fence you're about to hear about here. Uh, he, he decided, he decided that, uh, that his surveyor in 2016 showed him what he owned, and the fence was incorrect, and Fry had made a mistake, and he starts taking the fence down. And that's when the trouble started. Now, I want to talk about that, uh, because right here, the defendant decided to take down the privacy fence and make use of the property that the survey indicated belonged to them. That's what people think. That's what people think. They think that surveyors come out and show them what they own. And there's a big debate in the land surveying community um, uh, over this single issue. Um, do, do survey. Some will uh, will say surveyors don't show people what they own. 
others will say, well, that's exactly what surveyors do. Um, and if we go if we go back to the genesis of this debate, we we got to go back to Curtis Brown, who uh, is um, famous for, or, or maybe you might say infamous for his uh, two uh, his two publications, uh, Boundary Control and Legal Principles, which I think was the first uh, book that he had out. Uh, back in the late 1950s, early 1960s. And then he came out with evidence and procedures um, for boundary location. Uh, Those are his two primary books. They have survived him. Mr. Brown is no longer with us. They are now uh, under the uh, stewardship of uh, other authors, and they're somewhere up in their sixth or seventh editions. But Way back, so that was in the 19, and, and the, what, he's, what he's infamous for, I, w- I would say, is this idea that he came up with that surveyors don't need to be making any kind of determinations about, you know, where the true property line is located. They just simply need to stake their client's deed. Uh, because as all surveyors should know, the, the deed... The, the legal description in the deed, that's basically what we're focused in on here. The legal description in any deed um, will never exactly match what's on the ground. It can't. Uh, it, it just physically can't. We don't, we don't survey in a vacuum. Uh, we survey out of the field, out in nature, wind blowing, rain, uh, all of these elements. You will never, I mean, Precisely, on a pinhead, you will. The title documents will never be precisely represented on the ground by monuments set by a surveyor. Okay, they they that just can't happen. But there are all of these boundary location doctrines that we've talked about on on many occasions on this show. The common grantor doctrine, uh, the, uh, the the doctrine of monuments. Uh, acquiescence, repose, all of these boundary location doctrines that help settle the location question when there is confusion, when there is doubt, when there are ambiguities, when there is obliteration. That's what they're there for. Now, see, what Brown did, though, when he came out with his his book, uh, he advocated that the surveyor should simply take take the uh, title documents and go to the ground and put those title documents on the ground and don't fool around with giving any opinions on where the property lines are actually located. Don't fool around with that. Now, there's there's several reasons maybe that might have been good back in the ni- early 1960s, late 1950s on giving that kind of advice. Um, one of them is that back in the 1950s and 1960s, it still wasn't well recognized um, that privity of contract was pretty much dead. Now, what do I mean by privity of contract? Well, if we go back to, uh, we got to go back to 1916 in the case of uh, McPherson versus Buick Motor Company to get an understanding there. Uh, prior to that case in 1916, which was decided by uh, the famous uh, jurist, uh, Benjamin Cordoza, who eventually became, uh, this was in New York, he eventually became um, 
a, a Supreme Court justice on the United States Supreme Court, but he wrote the opinion of Buick Motor Company versus or, or McPherson versus Buick Motor Company. Back then, you couldn't be negligent unless you had a contract with someone. So you could only be negligent to your client. You couldn't be negligent to the world. Uh, the reason for that is the four elements of negligence. Uh, first element is the tortfeasor, the defendant, uh, it's got to be proven he owed a duty to the plaintiff, he or she. Uh, second is fell below the duty. That's the standard of care. Third is causation. Because the plaintiff, uh, the defendant fell below the duty of care, damages. The plaintiff was damaged. So the way that you prove that there was a duty owed was a contract. If you have a contract with your client, if two people have a contract, two companies have a contract, there is a, that's called privity of contract. There is a duty under the contract. The contract creates the duty. So the first element uh, is secured. Well, that all changed with this, uh, with this, uh, the, the McPherson case. McPherson bought a Buick motor car, and back then they uh, they had wooden spokes on the wheels, and he had a rotten spoke. He was driving down the road. The rotten spoke gave way. The wheel broke apart. He crashed his car. He was injured. He sued Buick Motor Company. Buick Motor Company said, you can't sue us. We didn't have a contract with you, McPherson. If anything, maybe you can go sue Maybe you can go sue the car dealership or maybe the wheel manufacturer. That's not even our wheel. That's not even our wheel. You can't sue us. That was the beginning of um, uh, of uh, implied. That was when an implied contract uh, came to life. That was when the, neg- the tort of negligence, as they say, came out from underneath contract and became a standalone, uh, standalone tort without contract because uh, now the law can impose a duty uh, on a tortfeasor. So in other words, what Cordoza said was, no, 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 Buick Motor Company, it's your car. If you didn't have a contract with McPherson, we're going to imply that you did because you owed McPherson um, uh, a, a duty of care to put a, a reasonably safe automobile out there. So in other words, they implied a contract because McPherson, uh, Buick Motor Company didn't doesn't owe a, a duty to the entire world, but they owed a duty to McPherson and others like McPherson who might buy a Buick, Buick Motor Comp, uh, a Buick Motor Car. So that's how uh, that's how the tort of negligence um, came out from underneath contract it's a standalone tort and now it no longer requires privity of contract in order for negligence to uh, be um, uh, for a, uh, a defendant professional practitioner to be uh, to be negligent uh, to uh, some landowner or someone other than uh, the client so so when Brown was writing this in the 19 early 1960s, the idea that you still had to have privity of contract uh, was still out there. You know, the, the, the Internet wasn't around, and people weren't getting the word out. Uh, people weren't getting the word that, hey, uh, as a professional practitioner, I can be negligent to the next-door neighbor. I don't have to have a contract with the next-door neighbor 
in order for, uh, we don't have to have a privity of contract with the next door neighbor in order for the next door neighbor to sue me for negligence. So that that's one idea that was out there. Uh, so um, without privity of contract, what, what Brown said was, don't go out on a limb, just stake your client's deed. The, your client is the only one who can sue you. Just go stake your client's deed. How, now, how's your client's going to sue you if you staked out his deed? How can he complain that you staked out his deed? Um, so that was the safest course of action. The other thing that was going on then that has also changed since then is the uh, uh, the rules of evidence. Back when Brown was uh, first came out with his books, this was back in the ni- early 1960s, um, the the um, majority rule in the United States of America, the majority rule in the United States of America was an expert testifying in court. Now, what does majority mean? Well, it more than 25 states, 26 states. I don't know how many, and I can't name which ones they were. But the majority rule was an expert testifying in court could not give an opinion on the ultimate issue in the case. Why did the baby have a birth defect? That's the ultimate issue in the case. Couldn't give an opinion. Why did the tire blow? Was it an environmental issue or was it manufacturer defect? Couldn't give an opinion. Why did the baby have a birth defect? Uh, Dalbert versus Merrill Dow. Was it the Dow chemicals or was it just an accident of nature? Couldn't give an opinion. Uh, <clears throat> why did McPherson's uh, wheel come apart? Was it a bad spoke or was it an environmental issue? He, he hit a rock. Couldn't give an opinion. Uh, so if you can't give an opinion, so when Brown is writing his book saying, just go stake the client's deed, don't worry about what they own, just stake their deed. Your client, you got privity contract with your client. Nobody else can sue you for negligence. And the other thing is, even if you wanted to give an opinion, the majority rule in the United States of America is you can't give an opinion. So if you don't give an opinion, how can you be wrong? Well, the simple answer to that is you can't. But all of that has changed. All of that has changed. In 1975, I believe it was, the, the federal rules of evidence and the federal rules of civil procedure were uh, adopted at the federal level. And since then, uh, 42 or 43 states out of 50 have adopted the federal rules uh, of evidence. And we've talked about this. We talked about this several months ago. Uh, early part of this show. We've talked about the rules of evidence, Rule 704, the ultimate issue rule. It is no longer objectionable for an expert to testify as to the ultimate issue in the case. As a matter of fact, if you don't have an opinion on the ultimate issue in the case, you could actually end up being negligent. So in 1979, uh, Brown kind (coughs) of, he got involved with a case um, we're not going to go over that case right now, but I just want to make this point. He wrote in 1979 in the old surveying and mapping uh, publication of ACSM, American Congress of Surveying and Mapping. He wrote an article uh, called Land Surveyor's Liability to Unwritten Rights. What did the client have in mind when he asked the surveyor to locate his boundaries? Was he asking the surveyor to locate his ownership or just the deed lines? As all surveyors should know, there's a vast difference between ownership and written deed rights. Not necessarily vast, but in many cases, it is vast. In some cases, it is vast. 
the written deed is merely evidence of ownership, not proof of ownership. Title to land can be transferred by unwritten rights. From my experience with clients, very few know that there's a difference between the two. Most clients want to know what they own. And that is exactly what's happening in this case. So there's there's two possibility possible results from surveying activity. You have the 2011 uh, survey. Now we have the 2016 survey. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna we're coming up on a break. We'll pick up after the break. Quick stakes. Does your survey supply dealer have quick stakes? If not, demand that they start carrying quick stakes. Did you know that quick stakes are better for your back than your local chiropractor? Lightweight and easier to use than the old heavy wooden stake. Order a sample today and prove it to yourself. Quick stakes, your back friendly stake. This is Dr. Susan Blank, host of Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. Please join us at 4 p.m. on Tuesday afternoons. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. This is America's Web Radio. Would you like to have a show, talk about your business, or express your opinion on America's Web Radio? Just email gm at americaswebradio.com and we'll get back to you. Thank you. Okay, welcome back, folks. All right, right before the break, talking about the two possible results of surveying activity. This is why surveyors end up in court, okay? Uh, a lot more than engineers, architects, and maybe not as much as doc- doctors and lawyers because there's a lot of money involved there, but um, a lot more than their uh, uh, than their engineer and architect contemporaries. Um, either everybody's happy or... Nobody's happy. And when I'm talking about everybody, I'm talking about the affected landowners. Either they're all happy with the survey results. That usually meant, means that the surveyor um, came out and basically um, maintained the status quo, um, reaffirmed the status quo. The status quo in this case is the, the fence that Fry put up between the two houses. And we still don't even know how he fit, put that fence up yet, but hopefully... <laughs> Uh, hopefully in this last segment we'll get that in. But, uh, or nobody's happy. And that usually means that, um, the surveyors come out and upset the status quo. And that's what happened in 2000 and 2011. Which, which, if nobody's happy, that results in a couple, a couple of other possibilities. Um, so in this situation, the 2011-2016 surveys upset the status quo. Nobody's happy. Weber wasn't happy. 
Kroger wasn't uh, Kroger wasn't happy. Okay, uh, because neither surveyor maintained the status quo. In other words, if they had come up with the fence, with the boundary line along the fence, everybody would have been happy. That we we would have had no lawsuit. We would have we wouldn't have be reading this case. So when nobody's happy, there's three or four possibilities there. Number one is they ignore the results. They, being the landowners, they just ignore the results, and that's what's ha- what that's what happened in 2011. And you're gonna, if, we're gonna see that in just a second here. When Weber saw that the 2011 survey he ordered uh, didn't agree with the fence, he just he, he tried to ignore it. He just wanted to let it go. But Kroger and his wife, uh, these things don't you know don't ha- don't happen in a vacuum. These things don't happen under you know under a sheet somewhere. When the surveyors you know, put the stakes in the ground, they drive monuments in the ground. Uh, you know the different the old the old uh, the old saying is um, uh, doctors uh, bury their mistakes, um, attorneys put their mistakes in jail, land surveyors monument their mistakes. So they put monuments in the ground and drove stakes up next to them. So it didn't go unnoticed by the Krogers, but it lasted for fun. The peace lasted for five years until Kroger got his own survey, and then, you know, the proverbial, you know what, hit the fan, and we, we have a lawsuit on our hands. So, um, yeah, so either they will ignore the results or they'll do something about the results. And then that do something could be anything from uh they have arguments about it they hate each other for the rest of their lives as long as they live next door to each other it could get even more heated than that sometimes guns get broken out shots get fired uh, literally uh or it turns into some sort of uh it escalates from there and turns into a lawsuit and that's exactly exactly what happened in this case all right so let's go back to the case Let's go back. All right, so we get the 2016 survey, and then what happens? Um, Kroger starts taking the fence down. The fence that he agreed with Fry over. Matter of fact, he paid Fry to put the fence up. That was part of the buy-sell agreement between Fry and Kroger. He paid Fry to put it up. And here, Fry's the common grantor at that point in time. If not, we could settle this boundary dispute right now. If the surveyors were inclined to, but they weren't inclined to, they both basically ignored the fence. So Weber objected to the defendant's removal of the fence and sought injunctive and declaratory relief to resolve the disputes. The party had a, the parties had a bench trial. That means no jury. Uh, on November 28, 2018, the witnesses include, included Fry, Mr. Weber, and both the defendants, Mr. and Mrs. Kroger. Fry testified that he intended the privacy fence between 2405 and 2407 to be on the property line between the two properties, and that during the time he lived in 2407, he considered the fence to be the boundary between 2407 and 2405. Now, here's something interesting. Now, Fry explained how he decided where to place the privacy fence. This is a contractor. The guy's brilliant. He doesn't know how brilliant he is. He's more brilliant than the two dummy surveyors involved in this case. 
uh, this is I'm, I'm quoting Fry here. The idea that the fence post, uh, the center of a fence, will precisely be on a boundary line is unlikely. Belmont and Oakland, uh, that neighborhood is almost exclusively 50 foot by 150 foot lots. Some rare exceptions, but almost every lot, including all of them on Oakland, and and that lot uh, are 50 by 150. The house is set. The setback is five feet off the, the property line. Our method for laying out the fence would be to measure between the houses. They had the same setback, and we split the difference. That would have been our method for laying out the fence. The guy is absolutely brilliant. The survey, I wish the surveyors could be uh, as astute. Let's go back. Uh, we're not even, we won't get through all of this case today. Um, let's, let's, let's just step back. There were, there were a couple of other things here. There was a, uh, if you're looking at it on Google Earth by chance, uh, and you're looking at 2407, the house to the south, and you check, you went back to the year, uh, aerial photography in 20, in 2010, the privacy fence is still there, splitting the houses. It doesn't go all the way to the front. It comes from the back. There was a parking pad back there. That was also part, part of the evidence. When Fry split the houses and put the fence up by splitting the difference between the houses, the, remember there were five-foot setbacks. The houses were originally built to five-foot setbacks. How did they build them to five-foot setbacks if the original survey monuments weren't in the ground? They had to have been in the ground at that point in time. The houses were built to the original marks. Fry puts the fence uh, between, halfway between the houses, and it just so happens to line up with the sidewalk in front of 2407. sidewalk in front of 2407 is right up against the boundary line. And in the back, there's a parking pad. In the back of 2407, there's a parking pad. The fence lines up directly with the north line of the parking pad. The parking pad, and there was an old chain link fence. We didn't hear about that yet, but he, when he when he was renovating and getting ready to put the fence, uh, the new privacy fence up, he took down an old an old chain link fence that was in essence right where he put the uh, the, fen uh, the fence up, uh, the new privacy fence up. Three. That's that's your collateral evidence. I mean, that's your extrinsic evidence as to where the boundary line was. We had obliterate, obliterated corners, no corner monuments. The surveyors, we didn't even get into the surveyor testimony. The surveyors that came out there, we don't know about what happened with 2011 surveyor guy. Don't even know who he is. But the 2016 surveyor came in and testified in court. What he testified to, he, he doesn't even remember. His testimony is he doesn't even remember seeing a fence up between the two properties, and he didn't know anything about the sidewalk. He just held the 2011 pins. And what the 2011 pins did was, uh, in front, the pin was north of the fence line, the sidewalk. It was over onto Kroger by a foot or so. And in the, in the back... By the uh, by, the alley, uh, it went across the parking pad and cut off about a foot and a half of it. So it went diagonally across the fence. It crosses the fence at some point in time, but it's diagonal to it. So what do you? Uh, so what about the building setback? 
if the if the survey line is correct, then both houses are in violation of the setback lines. Surveyors didn't even think about that, or it doesn't come up in the case. They have a line going diagonally through uh, between the two houses. And um, Kroger's surveyor, uh, in his testimony at trial, uh, didn't even didn't even notice that. All he did, he he found some old stakes, some old survey stakes somewhere. Doesn't tell us where. And he found the pins set by the 2011 surveyor, and he just blindly held those. And that was the final straw. Uh, that's when um, that's when the Krogers took action and started taking the fence down. And there was, and we go into a lawsuit. We go into a lawsuit. Either surveyor, either sir, you can't just ignore fences. I could have gone out here and surveyed this piece of property without having to look. Once I found out that there weren't any monuments in place, originally 2011, no monuments in place, got a fence. It's splitting between the houses. The houses were originally built in 1913. I've got obliterated corners, no monumentation in place. But I've got a, uh, in 2011, um, well, 2011, the privacy fence was up by then. I got a privacy fence. I got a sidewalk in the front. I got a concrete pad in the back. And in 2011, I'm working for Weber, living at 2407. Uh, he's my client. I ask a question. Uh, Mr. Weber, what does this fence mean? He's going to tell me, oh, that's the boundary line. Okay. All right. If I happen to strike up a conversation with Mr. Kroger, which I like to do, if, if possible, uh, it's good when people are home. I, I don't avoid them. I want to talk to them. The first question I ask that when, after I introduce myself and they know I'm surveying property is, hey, can you show me where your boundary lines are? And what's Kroger going to tell me? He's going to tell me about the fence. He's going to tell me about Mr. Fry. He's going to tell me about uh, how that is the boundary line between the two properties. Okay, folks, we got to wrap it up. It's been a pleasure. Uh, we will talk again next week uh, at at the Surveyor's Hour. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.